The only constant in this world is change. I'm sure you've heard this phrase or some version of it before. Well, today's episode is all about our changing world and the skills needed to lead us through. In a future that promises opportunity and waves of disruption, great leaders will need more than technical expertise to deliver results for their organizations. Rose Patton is the special advisor to the CEO of BMO Financial Group and the Chancellor of the University of Toronto. And just last week, she joined the Waterloo community to discuss her new book, Intentional Leadership, The Big Eight Capabilities Setting Leaders Apart. In today's episode, you'll hear that discussion with Waterloo President and Vice Chancellor Vivek Guell. Rose revealed why leadership needs to be intentional and the top skills required for success. Keep listening to hear the thoughts she shared with Waterloo students, faculty, and partners. This was very generous, Vivek, and thank you. And thank you all for coming. Thank you for your interest in leadership, and thank you um, for your interest in my book. Um, but before I get into um, the story of how this book evolved and to give you some highlights of the book, um, I want to acknowledge uh, the layers of joy uh, that I'm feeling uh, by being here this afternoon. Uh, first of all, to be back uh, with my colleague um, Vivek, and whom I've watched closely all those years, and as he's referred to, uh, to have met and have you among us as well, members from um, BMO, members from U of T, members from um, Manulife, one of my former employees, employers, and also members of the community, and of course, the wonderful faculty and the wonderful students um, of the University of Waterloo, this, this great university. Uh, so thank you all for being here. Uh, it's, a, it's a great joy for me, and uh, there's nowhere else I would like to be than here today. So with that, let me uh, move and talk to you a little bit about um, the unveiling of the book. As someone said to me, it's kind of behind the curtain, you know, um, uh, of the book. But my interest, as Vivek has referred to, and passion, has really been uh, deep and growing for decades. Now, of course, it's easier to connect the dots as you look back today than it would have been at any point in time looking forward. Writing a book was never on my bucket list. But my passion and dedication to understanding leadership and how it could be better has always been my mission. The book evolved from this great passion through a deliberate and a very focused exploration of the implications of the big disruptions we were going through and how did they affect leaders through the dramatically changing times. I became formally really preoccupied with this, which is when I moved intentionally from my day job at the bank to further study and explore leadership and continue to advise there, but not in a day-to-day -day capacity. And I became preoccupied with this, but particularly right in the aftermath of the global financial crisis because that's the, the big, one of the big, it's not the only one that we've had, but it's one of the big crises that we've had that's been global, that had very far-reaching impact. And the, the curiosity at the time was to explore through real leaders, 350 of them across North America, uh, what they felt could be attributed to leadership and how it might have been different if leadership had been different. Uh, a, a wonderful set of findings uh, that came from this, that began this journey. Uh, but then, of course, I, as I said, was not on my bucket list to write a book. So now we're into the pandemic. And this intensified both my curiosity and my great need to understand this better, you know, these dramatically changing times and their impact on leadership. Throughout this period, in between, <clears throat> the, there's two major crises in particular, I wanted to explore how organizations were adapting. And it was encouraging to see uh, organizations had adapted well. Uh, they had recuperated from many things, even from the scandals uh, and, <clears throat> and the deceit that we saw play out <clears throat> in the financial crisis period, in addition to you know, the destruction of, of companies. Uh, but many did well in multiple ways. 
new business models, new customer models, uh, potentially new student models, new patient models. I, I, my world has gone across uh, these sectors, and I could see all the changes. The one thing, though, that was confirming for me uh, is that the leadership side, the talent pipeline side, uh, leaders in place and the pipeline, uh, were lagging. And in fact, uh, it had been less definitive as to what we should do differently. So that's when I began to think more about this. Uh, and I started to explore three questions in particular. One was uh, to address what is it, what would be the two or three real game changers uh, that was now playing out in our worlds that really could be attributed to those great disruptors. The second one was if there are these three or four big game changers that no leader is exempt from, then what would be the specific abilities that now would be more highly valued than might have been over the last decade or two and, or before? And they might even be expected because we have workforces now that feel more empowered and they want to be more empowered. They feel more emboldened. And so there's a big ask from our workforces that was greater than before. The third one then was what would compel leaders to embrace a mindset of becoming more self-aware by assessing how they're measuring up in this newer and changing world and therefore pursue some renewal of themselves. My curiosity was driven by my own leadership experiences and my own learnings over the decades, which was across many sectors and many cultures uh, geographically as well. And it was supplemented by the experience of the several hundred leaders that I've had the opportunity uh, to teach uh, at Rotman <coughs> and at the Bank of Montreal and their learnings and their findings. So all of this started to culminate into pictures for me that would answer those questions and hopefully have good impact on both today's leaders as well as those emerging leaders that we refer to uh, in our great student bodies. And so the curiosity involved as well, my acknowledgement that I was seeing in a general way through all the work I was doing with leaders, there were this group that always excelled. They excelled no matter what the changes were or what the continuing challenges were from the current context that they were in. There was another general category who continued, and we see this today. They continue to be good leaders, but they do have significant struggles. And of course, the third category, not surprising, were those who, over time, if they don't renew, they don't sustain uh, the leadership abilities, and you do find derailment happen. I was seized with this, and so I wanted to explore it more. But importantly, I've spent a lot of time on boards and in different, as I said, different institutions, large, purposeful institutions. And so th this I wanted to see in terms of what I was hearing. In boardrooms, board for example, being involved with the selection of CEOs and senior leaders, I would hear stories like, if only this person had learned earlier they could have done so much better. This candidate today could be a true candidate for this important role if they had known this earlier and if they had done something about it, if they were aware of it. So this if only story stuck with me. It saddened me because some of those people I knew, I knew over the years, I knew of their accomplishments, but I also knew uh, that there were gaps uh, that hadn't been attended to along the way and now it was catching up. The other source of this if only story also came from regrets that I hear today from CEOs, senior leaders, senior academics, and all of the people that I work with. And those if onlys are voluntary. And they say, you know, Rose, I wish I had learned this earlier. I could have done so much better. Those are successful leaders, um, but they have regrets. Often the regrets are they wish they had changed the strategy or now the equal regret is I wish I had learned this earlier. So all of this really shows us leadership is very hard. Leaders are faced with increased tensions, demands for decisions that we've not seen before. Many matters relate to mental health, general health, 
work-life balance, care for others, personal family hardships, which are now interspersed with the normal challenges, what we would see, of the erosions in the economy, ruined businesses, short-lived strategies, disengaged workforces, and on and on, and boards of directors have also heightened their game and are far more demanding. Those extraordinary disruptions of the past 15 years have made it very clear leadership is not timeless. What got us here will not keep us here. Continuous renewal is a must for leaders. It's here to stay, but leadership can be learned. It just needs to be intentional. This is the premise of my book. Leadership is not timeless, and renewal is now becoming the gold standard. It offers answers through the book to questions that I mentioned earlier regarding what are the game changers, what would compel leaders to embrace an open mindset, and what abilities should they learn more of. Throughout the chapters, learnings and frameworks for taking all of this and dealing with it are shared, including deliberate conversations with 10 highly accomplished leaders throughout Canada who offer their stories of their defining moments. And that's the first big takeaway from today that I would be really happy if you did, and that is to look at defining moments because these are the ones, things that become teaching moments. What had triggered their learnings? What had triggered um, their renewal, which they seem to have done a lot of? Successful leaders from all sectors was very important to me, representing diverse journeys in different sectors who had outstanding leadership excellence. Three CEOs, a university president, the governor of the Bank of Canada, a provincial minister, a University of Toronto professor, and a former ambassador to the United Nations, and the former head of McKinsey Canada. So I, those were deliberately chosen to share stories. It's not just my experiences, my stories. It's a wide sector because I wanted this book I wanted those learnings that I hope to impart uh, to be accessible and, but meaningful uh, to all sectors. And so I think of it more as universal leadership and not just specific sectoral leadership. The key emphasis of the book throughout is about how our setbacks and our breakthroughs are the things that will help us become more aware of what we need to do differently or what we need to affirm and expand. These stories of successes and setbacks, they confirm that leadership is not timeless. It's the first big belief that we have to embrace. What got us here has changed. Yesterday's assumptions are not reliable, or are they good enough? So much is different. So much has intensified around us. Albert Einstein's famous quote brings this to life. I, I almost try to live by it in, in, in the work that I do. The significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at before they were created. And this is true today. The, the problems that we face are not familiar to us. There's so many things that are unprecedented. And so yesterday's assumptions, or even what appeared to be tried and true, won't work. The next key emphasis in the book are the three unmistakable game changers. And, and you know, as well as I do, coming up with three things rather than 20, um, you know, is hard also. But I pushed myself to do this. Over this eight to 10 years of exploration, of working with students in the classroom, students meaning executives, it's executive programs in which I teach at Rotman, as well as through uh, my day job at the Bank of Montreal, as I call it, as well as through the university and the things I engage in there, it, it was not easy to come up with the three that no one is exempt from. They're here to stay, and while we may see some of the changes that we're facing, we may see that they are transitory, many are not. For example, the first one is increased stakeholder expectations. We've come from an era where we are, we're singularly looking at what we would call shareholders. Now we're into multiple stakeholders. This brings far more complexity and far more increased demands on leaders and organizations. Satisfying one set of shareholders just won't cut it. 
responding to the expectations of customers, regulators, directors, employees, students, boards, and the broader community, this is the norm, and there's not trade-offs among them. This game changer is grounded in the demand for truth. So we go from shareholder to stakeholder, but overlaying that is a greater demand for truth, trust, and transparency. I call it the three T's. Assessing trust and character is no longer a silent criteria. Trust is constantly on trial. And leaders need to learn it every day and re-earn it every day. The second one, which also is taking shape, but this is one you won't have any difficulty at all accepting quickly, and that is how we work in the workplace. And the pandemic really showed us this in real life. No one needs convincing. With the intergenerational mix, the intercultural mix of employees, leaders need to tune in to the changing expectations and the mindsets around them. And this would include, of course, our world here uh, of, of students. They are the next leaders. Listening and engaging, inclusion, and empowering employees are just so much harder. It, it matters less, really, which companies you look at. Even the best struggle somewhat with this, the measure of engagement, the measure of empowerment, and how employees view it, because that is what matters. It's not what leaders believe uh, that matters. Those changing expectations are continuing to shape, and indeed, we don't know yet the fallout from uh, the pandemic. And so we cannot judge too quickly where to go with this. We have to let it play out, but we have to play, play out by listening, by tuning in to our people that we're dealing with. Not surprisingly, the third game changer arises from the extent to which strategies are now so short-lived and so quickly out of date, putting extreme pressure on leaders and leading differently. The increasing dominance of digitalization is driving change in the most operating models everywhere, no matter what sector you're in. They have dramatic implications for a leader's strategic agility. It's not uncommon for CEOs to underestimate how much the new technologies can increase value for all their stakeholders. We're slow catching up. It's human. It's human nature. Strategic agility, seeing around corners, have to have an open mindset, and it becomes a must for leading. Yesterday's assumptions won't do it. Those three game changers relate to the externally driven conditions of our worlds, but they're not the only challenges. The book also identifies other leadership barriers that debunks long-held beliefs that we as leaders have and hold, but many of them can be outdated, and if not, they've at least research shows that they're changing. So I speak to the individual leader's own mindset, their own beliefs, including how they improve themselves, what they choose as leaders, how they develop leaders, and importantly, how they mentor leaders, because that is the key obligation uh, of a worthy leader. We all as leaders have our beliefs and our habits which are hard to change, and it's well to discard the notion which we've all had uh, as one of my biggest learnings in my time. When you're appointed to a leader, you're led to believe or you choose to believe that once a leader, always a leader. You're appointed. That is such flawed thinking now. And so basically it's another Einstein for me. You can tell he's one of my favorites. And his this time is that the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. So this does bring us, when we look at the game changers and we look at what leaders are now holding as beliefs, then the second question is what abilities do they need during this period of time to more highly value and, and highly cultivate? And this brings me to the big eight. Um, the big eight is the big eight because I couldn't make it seven. And I couldn't make it five. Five is my favorite number. And, you know, I avoided doing what many advisors do, uh, consultants in particular, no offense to consultants. You know, they often give you 20 because it's hard to go wrong if you have 20. So basically, I'm stuck with eight. And all through these times, even when the pandemic overlaid what I'd been working on for all this time, I just 
couldn't make it any less. So those eight are it, and they are what is most highly valued. They're, they emerged repeatedly throughout in the classroom with the conversations I was having with leaders, with leaders I mentor, and they repeat themselves in many different ways. But they do address the human side of leading, which Avivik mentioned earlier, because I believe that we've neglected somewhat for all kinds of reasons. It has gotten attention over the last number of years for sure, but we're not where we need to be because when, when there's technically related skills needed to get the job done, that's naturally where our mind goes for what's critical at this moment. Um, but you know, as I've often said, you can do more harm with screwing up a leadership employee related issue than you can with a spreadsheet. So basically, we need to put more emphasis on the human side of leading. Those eight began to address this. They've been tested with hundreds of leaders, to be exact, officially about 1,900 plus, and they've been officially checked in a day-to-day -day practice. So I feel very comfortable with those, or I wouldn't be laying them out here. So basically, they go from what we've known in our thinking as a command and control and a hierarchical approach to leading. And now that's one of the reasons we struggle so much with an inclusive approach. Uh, because of this, we've all been bred on it, uh, many, especially people in my time. All eight are directly relevant, but they move you from a command and control environment to a connect and collaborate, because those are the things we need. That's what people are looking for. That's what students look for. That's what customers look for. They want to understand the why of things, not just the order or the decision. They are personal adaptability, not hard for you to see where that comes from and what we've been talking about. They are strategic agility and their self-renewal. Those three are three of the eight and they really relate to the mindset that you, the leader, has. The next two relate to your personal values, which are very central, and they become empathy. There's no greater emphasis now that's placed on any ability than empathy. It has come out into the world. People discovered it cannot be outsourced. It can't even be owned by the Human Resources Department. So, so basically, empathy is really up there. The certainty of character, and I've explained to you, this is not about lying or stealing. It's not about dishonesty. It could be. It's about the three T's. It's about the trust. It's about the truth. And it's about the transparency that every one of your people see around you. That is what is talked about when we think about character. Um, there are five indicators of character which, which I've worked on and uh, maybe there'll be a moment to get them in when Vivica and I speak uh, in a few minutes. The last three relate to connecting and they are contextual communication. What do I mean by that? It's, it's not really complicated. It just takes time, it takes reflection, it takes a bit of thought and that is the whole idea of respecting people to the point that you're explaining the why of something, not just the what. People want, people are knowledgeable. You know, we, we've learned so much and social media tells us a lot of things, all good, some, some not so good. But basically, we know things too as employees or as students or as other stakeholders. And so seeking input, this is part of inclusion, it becomes a really important thing. It's not about once a great leader, always a great leader. So we have contextual communication. We have spirited collaboration because collaboration is all about teams and teams and distributed leadership as opposed to vertical top-down leadership. Lastly, but certainly these are not in an order of value, uh, is the development of others. That is really a, big, a leader's biggest obligation is their legacy, is who they leave behind. It is, I hate to say it, but it is a little less about what each leader accomplishes. It's about the leaders they leave behind to do things. A chapter is dedicated in the book to each of those eight capabilities, and they relate to the role of the leader in today's world. The last chapter speaks to 
So what now? And they remind us that leadership starts with you. It starts with us. And it ends with us. The emphasis on this part creates a focus on how to move forward, how to apply the concepts that are being offered throughout the book. And it all starts with self-renewal. So I will leave it at this for now and welcome any questions that Vivek has for me and or that you at a later point in time will have for me. Uh, and I'd be happy to do this. And I want to thank you so much for your attention. And I hope before the day finishes, I can probably give you at least one thing that you could take away uh, to try to practice. Thank you. Sorry. Okay, how we go. Thanks. Well, thank you, Rose, for those uh, introductory remarks. And uh, maybe I'll just start off with, um, Rose, you've recently become a colonel in the armed forces, right? Yes, I am a colonel. <laughs> but they tell me I don't look like one. <laughs> and you, in, in your talk just now, you talked about going from command and control to connect and collaborate. And I imagine, because you're working with the Armed Forces College, you're helping look at how does an organization like the Army, which is built around command and control, work in today's world. So can you reflect yeah. on how that's going? Yeah, that's a lovely question, a lovely question, and a very appropriate one. And, and I have a little story. I didn't know Vivi was going to ask me this, so I didn't make this story before. And that's OK. You can ask me what he likes, and so can you. But. Um, about 10 years ago, this is a little story, I won't prolong it, maybe a little more, I don't know, it doesn't matter, it was quite a while ago. And um, I was called by the college, I didn't know anything about the forces or the, or the college, but I was called to see if I would come in to talk about the Big Eight and leadership, because that had started to emerge and I'd been getting invitations on it and I'd been teaching it at the bank as well as Rotman. So it must have been uh, less than 10 years. So. I said to them, I think you have the wrong person because um, you need to have someone who believes in what they're teaching. And I don't believe in command and control and I know that this would be what you need to do. That's the world you're in. You know, it's like when I was chair of Sick Kids Hospital. You know, you don't worry about certain things if a child is in emergency. So command and control has its place and it has its need and especially in very purposeful organizations, which those are. So he said to me, no, you're exactly, um, I guess they checked you out, you know, but you're exactly um, because we're, we know command and control is our world, but we also know that the world is changing and the, and this might not have been the exact words, but this was the message, and the attitudes of our officers, our lieutenants, even our generals, are, are needing to also tune into this. So you are what we need. And I did go there. And uh, empathy is one of the big eight. And as I got to empathy, because I figured, you know, eight, seven, eight years ago, that was still not heard that often every day. Uh, so I said, to, could someone in the audience, because this was an exchange students from around the world, and I wanted a field officer in the audience, could somebody in the audience just tell me, now that you've heard me talk about empathy and what it's all about, you know, do you find that you come across this and that you actually do this uh, day by day? Oh, ma'am, that's what they call you, by the way. It's not a good one, is it? But anyway, um, the, but that's, I'm a colonel, but I get called Colonel Ma'am. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of sweet, really. But anyway, um, so oh, ma'am, uh, he said, I do this every day. I didn't know it was called empathy. Mm. So you see, Vivek, it is true that in their worlds, just like in our academic worlds, there are certain things that are natural and needed and necessary that will always be maintained. But we have to adapt around this to recognize and be realistic and not complacent about what's going on in the world around us. And then somehow you have to combine. So what the person ended up saying to me was, we know that command and control is a necessary thing that we have to do. But we also know as the world changes, we're going to need to adapt to this. 
And it was in that context that they talked about, which I thought was so clever, and I hope to pursue this more as I get into this role. But they talked about the two streams of command and control, maybe, maybe being a little more part of what you might think is management, whereas connect and collaborate, using my terms, you can think of as leadership. And you've seen just many books written on the difference between management and leadership, and some of them relate to that and some of them don't. Uh, but basically that was, and that answer satisfied me and that's why I did it. But it had nothing to do with my being a colonel today. This was only six months ago. <laughs> Great. Um, and so just building on that, and uh, I should say the questions uh, have been developed based on the ones that were submitted as people registered. And so we're kind of collapsing things, but hopefully uh, you'll have many of your questions addressed. Um, so you write about, and you've just talked about the importance of character and values and empathy in a leader. And you know, these are not qualities that are taught, right? The way we learn other more technical skills, um, or even skills like communication. Um, these are characters. And that really requires self-assessment yeah. and reflection. Yeah. So how do you prepare yeah. leaders or individuals to do that kind yeah. of self-reflection? Yeah. So this is also a really important question, and uh, because character is, everyone owns it. It exists with everyone, but it can feel elusive and hard to define. Um, I have, uh, in the book, there's five indicators of character, which I will speak to in a moment, but I'll say first that defined here is the search for truth, trust, and transparency. So these would be the first things that all our stakeholders would look from us, so they're doing that assessment. They're, they're, if you listen to them, that's what they're seeking. And so that helps the self-reflection. But I would also say that don't get scared or, and, and think, oh my gosh, you know, this idea of reflection, I don't have time for it, you know, I'm so busy, which is true, we live busy lives. This concept of reflection is pausing. It's pausing for five minutes here and there based on what you're hearing, what you're observing, if you're tuned into your environment. And it is pausing to say, could I have been better? It is pausing to say, what did I do there that wasn't the right thing? Self-reflection and self-awareness get created daily. They're not just when you get a 360, you know, in your job. So I just think that we shouldn't overstate the burden of reflection, but we should just adopt it and do it every day. And I think leaders will know if they're tuned in at all, whether they have a good level of trust or they don't. So looking even inwardly at, do my people trust me? Do my anyone trust me? Uh, becomes a very important thing to do. What people tend to look for, gone through a lot of work on this to try to ground it into something that you know people can relate to every day. They look for, do you keep your word? Now we kind of have used the word integrity a lot over time, but we've probably never really thought about what it might mean. But do they keep their word? People look for, do you keep your word? Do you go out on a limb? That would, do, you, do you have courage or do you show signs that when the tough gets going, you know, you just sort of back off or walk away? Do you forgive? You know, how many of us grew up when we, we thought, oh my God, when the leader said, remember when you did this, Rose, you know, that wasn't a good thing. And it's like, do you have a black book, you know, that you keep? <laughs> and and if, if people, they don't let go and things stay forever. I mean, this is not how the world works. So you, it's forgiveness. I mean, it's nothing better than to see forgiveness in a leader. So those are just three. Uh, empathy was absolutely in there, as you can imagine. Uh, so basically, I would say that uh, character doesn't have to be as soft as it appears. And if you pay attention, you, you know it when you see it, and people know it when they see it. And, uh, and it has to be earned every day. Those are elements of character that are a little bit more elusive, but don't, they're very definitively there. So, so many individuals, as they're moving through their leadership trajectory, are working on advancing their own career and yeah. developing these skills yeah. and uh, characteristics, but they also are working on building a pipeline of leaders, building yeah. their teams. So how do you advise managers and executives to keep in mind how they can do their own development while developing their teams? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, this, is, this is a pet peeve I have a bit to, 
I think even in the most advanced organizations who are learning organizations, I still think that development of self, but development of others uh, is lagging and is not adequate for what we need today in this faster paced world. So I think that you've got to discard the notion that leadership is timeless, discard the notion because someone is really smart and or, and or even formally highly educated. These are really table stakes and really important. But you've got to discard that because that's not development in today's world. Remember the Einstein quote. So formalized development becomes really important. And what do we mean by that? The model that we've used and it's been tested in a number of ways, and I still hold on to it, is development comes in three forms. Uh, it starts, of course, with feedback. So you have to be able to articulate where people need development without crushing them and being specific enough so that they have something to work with. But then how do you do this? Most development, in fact, 70% of it, comes from on-the-job assignments. So it is what you do in changing in roles and or new projects. It doesn't have to be changing titles or it doesn't have to be a ladder where you're getting promoted. It just has to be something different that's going to help you experience a new uh, capability or skill. So that's 70%. And so therefore the care that goes into and has to go into what assignments that you give to people is really, really critical. Not just that there's a hole and you need to get it filled. And I feel that because I'm such a strong believer in development comes from all sources. I attribute myself as much to my success, be it what it is, uh, to the volunteer roles that I've had than I do to my formally paid role. Absolutely. And they've been in parallel since I've been 22 years old. So I think that you know, the development can very, and we do this, I have to say, at BMO, uh, whereby part of the development will be taking on a board or taking on a charity, because there's so much you can learn from this. So we're a little bit too narrow in our thinking, I think, of the kinds of assignments, that they have enough stretch. Yes, they can have some risk, but you can't, you know, let a person fall off a cliff. So there's a lot of thought that goes into this and you know, leaders need to take the time uh, to do it. The, the, the other 10%, uh, well, there's 30%, but the other 10 uh, relies a lot on formalized. And, but a lot of people do that. They'll send people off, you know. Thank goodness they send them to Rotman at times. They send them to Waterloo. But it may not always be the best fit. Uh, but a 10 per, it should be no more than 10% of that. And then the 20% is about mentoring. And that's, I'll end on that only to say, it's not in that order, because I think that mentoring is the most important thing that you can do. And I think it's unfortunate that sometimes leaders uh, think that they're above and or outside of the need for mentoring. Wrong. I also think uh, that people, leaders, think that mentors are for emerging leaders, the more junior ones. Wrong. Leaders are for everyone, and you will find research will show you that 80% of, of any cluster that you can do of even CEOs have one to two to three. My first question I ask when I'm advising someone, do you have a mentor? No. Okay, then please get one. So development is not hard, but it, it has to be intentional, and it has to be specific. It won't happen by osmosis. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. The, um, so we just finished uh, Black History Month in February, mm -hmm. and it's a time, uh, as always, to reflect on how we're doing in terms of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and anti-racism, and every organization now has this as a significant priority. And I think you mentioned something along those lines, but we've often framed it as something that's a responsibility of human resources or a particular office. And uh, I think you really talked about that this is something that all leaders have to embrace. And so how do you see equity, diversity, inclusion fitting into the leadership models? I mean, to me, it's at the core. It's at the core of the human side of leading in, in, in particular. So uh, I was certainly aware of the concepts of DEI and particularly on the inclusion side as well as the diversity side. When I wrote the book, 
And to me, the eight capabilities in different ways absolutely hit that dead on. But it's not a delegation thing, not a thing that you delegate. It starts with the leader. And so I think it's really important. I, I'm saddened by the fact that organizations have made so much effort to adopt DEI uh, priorities, um, but we've not made anywhere as much advancement in the uh, inclusion side. So I think we show and do a bit better in the diversity side, but diversity then has to be sustainable. And sustainable happens only if inclusion follows. So if inclusion is not part of it, you can't sustain. And that's why we, you know, we do have lots of turnover and, and or at a minimum, very unhappy um, employees and, and students. So I think the focus has to be a bit more on inclusion for sustainability. But inclusion is really hard. Uh, and everyone has to be part of it. Um, so... You know, what I've done here, I've backed up this book by, I teach it at Rotman, and, and I put four modules in the program. Um, one is solely on inclusion for that reason, but it obviously is wrapped in DEI. So I'm not discounting either one, but if you take, look, look at the statistics, look at the research, you will see that diversity does exist, but it trails uh, because inclusion didn't get this, the same amount of attention. You mentioned, uh, again, in, as you were speaking about um, the changes in workforces and disengagement, we've heard reference to the great resignation, or uh, what was the latest phrase, was the uh, low work Mondays or something like that. Um, the what? what low work, there's uh, low Mondays or something, that like people don't do as much on Mondays. Oh, okay, so, okay, that because, was you know, a, that's, that's the, a new one. Tuesday, I learned Wednesday, something Friday, new every time. Like, uh, so there's all this uh, changes in work patterns uh, and, and obviously accelerated with the pandemic. Um, I mean, what are your observations and how can leaders utilize intentional leadership to respond to these trends? The one thing that I've stated, uh, and I stated this publicly in an article in the Star, um, is that this, this issue that we're dealing with, uh, exits and turnover and attrition, um, didn't start with the pandemic. It started kind of shaping at the time we had the bulge of millennials uh, in our worlds, and we didn't know what to do with them because they, you know, had different demands, different requests, different expectations, and some of them, you know, they could be appeased by. Some of them are leaders here now, right? <laughs> well, I know, I know. I mean, this is our world right now in the workplace with the intergenerational. I love that point you make because, you know, we have kind of, let's just call them the boomers. We have the millennials. The boomers are still there with their wisdom and advice, you hope, and ability to change. And then you have the millennials who kind of went through that period of making change, but it doesn't mean because you listen to people that you have to do everything they ask. I mean, leaders avoid sometimes listening because they don't want to have to do it. Well, they don't have to do everything because a leader has to make the decision for the greater good, but they do need to know what these smart people are thinking, not just wanting. And so basically we have that group, then we have the group of now the newer group, uh, what are we calling them these days? What is it? Gen X. Gen X, or oh, still Gen X? Oh, okay, I thought that, because I think there's a new one even. Gen Z. Gen Z, that's right, exactly. So then you they're, look at they're that. They're the second row. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, hands off, who is this? <laughs> so basically, this is, but this is the world we're in, let's be realistic about it. And so I remember spending huge amounts of time trying to understand how to work with a, a form of moderation, if you like, when the millennial, but the millennials now are in leadership positions, bringing with them much of the changes that happened because of them and much now that they'd like to do more of. Uh, and so look at the difficulty that leaders have if they don't open their minds. It, it is, you know, people are wanting to avoid talking about this, but it's real. Everyone I talk to, we, that's what we talk about because that's what they talk to me about. So I think that it didn't just start. So we shouldn't blame everything on the pandemic. The pandemic, though, 
emboldened people. When you have hardships like we've had, ranging from loss of family to loss of you know, any financial means, you have these two extreme hardships at a minimum. It does things to people. And so it makes them less differential to what they might think is your problem. And so people are starting to look at, not in a selfish way, but in an informed way, they're looking at, you know, what is it that I want to do right now? And they're willing to make compromises uh, as opposed to just say yes and we're ready because you are. So I do think that it's an important time, this great resignation as they call it. Um, I think that it's not new, but it is really highlighting the fact that we as leaders have not been as adaptable and organizations haven't been as adaptable for different reasons uh, as maybe we need it to be. Hindsight's always wonderful. Uh, but it, we're, it's here. And uh, there's, there's lots of research, by the way, that will show you the decline and the attrition uh, in uh, like across basically the world, but certainly I've looked at North America, that will show you the actual numbers of people leaving in the last 10 years have not been, you know, spiking and or they've been kind of, they might have spiked in the last year or so, but that doesn't mean it's a trend, but it is a cause and an outcome of, I think, where we are in this turbulent world. So in terms of that youngest generation, our students, what's your advice to them on how they can start today or tomorrow to become more intentional leaders? So, you know, if I were just wanting to be kind of smart, I'd say just be intentional. <laughs> um, but. I do think, where does intentionality come from? Intentionality, uh, intention is, is different than instinct. And we've really always, as humans, and even in our teachings, we've thought of you know, a, a criteria often. That person has really good instinct. We're going to go for that person. Um, but it depends on whether that instinct is dated or not. And so the only way to keep your instinct from being, instinct is important but it shouldn't be dated. And the only way to do that is to be open-minded and to listen and to, you know, believe in the fact that someone else may have something to say that's really valuable. And so I just think, and what I say to students, because, you know, I deal with them all the time, hundreds of them, and I, I love it because I think their minds are wonderful because they have open minds. And, and so I say to them, listen and don't be afraid and set an intention to do it. Because everything you do, just go to run a marathon. You just can't go run a marathon. You have to be intentional about how you do that. So just think, reflect how it fits with you and what is it you might have to do a little differently than what your instinct would tell you. So you, you're the future. The students in the room, I mean, you all are the future, but the students in the room, I mean, you are our future. You're our hope, you're our optimism. And you don't have to worry about having to undo because you're at a time where you can embrace and adapt those very things that we're learning the hard way. So one last maybe question. You talked about the importance of defining moments and in the interviews that you did with leaders, um, they talked about their defining moments. Can you give some examples of defining moments in your own career? Oh dear, how long do we have? <laughs> um, yes, I, I will, I will, I'm asked that question a lot, so I won't make, make a ten, a list of ten. I could give you a lot, because I've, I've just learned so much over time, and I've adapted and, and, and benefited from it. Um, but I think that I, I place a lot of value on uh, diversity, um, and whether I did that naturally, I don't know, but I was exposed to diversity very early in my career as I was trying to make my way, so-called up the ladder. And uh, I worked in different countries, and I didn't have much experience in different countries and different cultures, different mindsets in the same way. And I learned quickly that, you know, failure was not an option in my mind. So therefore, what do I have to do to do this better? And so understanding different viewpoints, I spent about, you know, three, 
three, third of my year for a number of years in different countries in Asia, for example. That was very new to me in those years. These are very different cultures and, and different mindsets. Uh, you could pick any country and have that view. Um, but I learned very quickly that listening and being open and pausing for a moment uh, was an important thing to do. And so I learned that, you know, this I'm talking 30 years ago. Um, when I joined U of T as chair of the board, I mean, I came in as a governor and I became chair of the board, and, and this story Vivek referred to a little bit, because he and I went through a time when, when there, and he was provost at the time. And, uh, you know, we, we had a departure of a, of a, a president in an unexpected way because of a wonderful offer he had and all this stuff. So there suddenly, you know, I'm a week as chair and I have to find a, through the process, a new president. So that taught me a number of things because it taught me a lot which I cherish to this day. I've written about it in my book actually, and not the detail of the time, but the process was that I had to quickly consult it was a different decisioning model than I was used to. And universities have this model, some corporations don't. But the model was very broad consulting in the academic world in, you know, in a structured, formal, natural way. And I found that wonderful. I, you know, I was kind of intrigued by it because you know you gotta get 20 people involved kind of thing. Um, but that was a big learning and a defining moment for me which has never left me. In fact, I attribute it to one of the biggest learnings of my life where I learned the process of decision making and the importance of consultation and therefore input from others, speaking of inclusion if you wanna put newer words on it. Uh, and I learned that and you know it was successful as well. We didn't have many stumbles, I think it's fair to say, Vivek and you no, you were my kind of side by side. So that was a big defining moment, but what, if you look back, what does that tell you? It just told you that one model, just because it's been used for a long time or it fits with this circumstances, like we talked about, you know, in forces, it doesn't mean it's the only one as time changes. Uh, but I have so many of them, um, the big defining moments. Well, I think that's a great point to end on, right? Because really makes the point that you can't take one leadership model and just transplant it, but being intentional, you can learn about exactly. what's gonna work in each setting. Exactly, what is different, yeah. and then you have to be intentional about doing it differently. It's, it's, it's not complicated. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, whatever your podcast player lets you do. And hey, maybe you'd like to join us for alumni events in the future. We host in-person and virtual events every month where you can connect with other alumni and experts. Follow the link in the episode description to see what's coming up. You Waterloo alumni podcasts are produced and hosted by me, Meg Vanderwood. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.